0: I think as we approach Christmas, hard to believe that it's here before us in two weeks. And it presents often, not only in the church, but certainly in the world, an identity crisis as to who Jesus really was and is. And it's my prayer that during this Christmas season, just for your church as well as even for my family, that we would gain a clearer and more accurate picture of the real Christ. R.C. Sproul said this, he said, there are many portrait, uh, portraits of Jesus in the galleries of the world that it seems hopeless to clarify the confusion that they have wrought in people's minds about who Christ is. So many conflicting images of him are put forward that some people have despaired of achieving an accurate picture of his true identity. Sproul said, we need Christ. We need a real Christ. We need a Christ not born, he said, of empty speculation or created to squeeze into a philosopher's pattern simply won't do. A recycled Christ, a Christ of compromise can redeem, he said, no one. A Christ watered down, stripped of power, debased of glory, reduced to a symbol or made impotent by scholarly surgery is not Christ, but Antichrist, end of quote. I mean, this is really the need of our day, an accurate representation of the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. And for our time this morning, I want to look at one of the clearest Christological passages in all of the Bible. And it is found, Ken read it this morning, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 1, 15, through 18. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 18. Ken has read the passage this morning, so I won't continue on that. And I, I, I had forgot that information with Ken. I had knew, known that I'd been with Ken, but really what I'm doing is I'm following Ken and Kristen wherever they go. And uh, That is funny, that is the third spot that we've been together even this morning at one way or another. But I wanna look at Colossians 1, 15 through 18. As we just settle into the passage in just a moment, let me just see if I can set the background for you and the context for you, and then we'll dive, particularly in verse 15, 16, and 17 this morning. The church of Colossae was situated about a 100 miles east of, a, of another city, another church at Ephesus. This church in Colossae was founded by a man by the name of Epaphras. And despite his godly leadership, heresy had arisen in this church. And so Epaphras, imagine this, traveled about 1,300 miles to see Paul, who was in prison in Rome. And Paul there in that prison cell penned Colossians to put down The heresy that would kill this church and obviously the subsequent churches. You might ask, what was the Colossian heresy? Well, what they did is they mixed Christianity with a a dash of Jewish legalism, a pound of pagan mythology. And these false teachers in Colossae kind of were concocting an old blend of religions. They taught that faith in Christ wasn't enough. That true salvation came through knowledge that was gained in their minds by this type of spiritual enlightenment. It was Christ plus philosophy, that's chapter 2. Christ plus legalism, chapter 2, 11 through 17. Christ plus mysticism, chapter two, eighteen, And Christ plus asceticism in chapter 2 in verse 20. They had Jewish dietary laws, religious festivals, external rituals, along with asceticism and astrology. They had in verse 18 of chapter 2 the worship of angels. They were worshiping mystical visions. And they were among the many rungs of the ladder to enlightenment. And so they were advocating a variety of artificial spiritual additives and thus dethroning the person of Christ. The commentator Curtis Vaughn said this, that it gave Christ a place, but not the supreme place. And I couldn't help but think in our own day, that's very, very true. Now, the Paul knew that the Colossians were not willfully unfaithful. It is simply that they were young in the faith. They were immature at some aspects. They were uninformed. And this erroneous teaching seemed to them kind of like a, a fresh revelation of truth taking them on from Epaphras' early beginnings. Now, obviously, this is not a first century problem. Christians in every generation have been tempted to season their theology to the taste of the current culture. The problem is Christ can't be mixed with philosophies of the world. He stands alone and he is supreme over all and he is preeminent over all as we'll see in this text. So these False teachers, in addition, just a little background in Colossae, were denying the humanity of Jesus Christ, and they viewed Christ as kind of one of the lesser descending spirit beings that emanated from God. They taught really what was called a a form of philosophic dualism, espousing that the, the spirit was good and that matter was evil. And so, hence, coming from that, a good emanation like Christ could never take on a body composed of evil matter. And so, the idea that God himself could become uh, a man was absurd to them in the teaching that they were hearing. And thus, they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And so, what Paul does is he's in that prison cell. Let's pick up his pen and make it an emphatic defense regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. And certainly we would do well to follow Paul's example in our conversations, even with cultists. I mean, the primary focus of our discussions with them should be the deity of Jesus Christ. And note that these false teachers do not so much deny the importance of Jesus, they simply dethrone him of his sovereign lordship over all things. And so, again, Paul pins what I believe to be one of the most beautifully concise Christologies in all of the New Testament. It gloriously gives Jesus um, his place and it creates a beautiful portrait of the incomparable Christ. So, what I want to do is just take you through this text and look at four declarations regarding the person of Christ that establish his preeminence in our life, okay? four declarations regarding the person of Christ that establishes his preeminence in our life. Let's look at the first declaration and it's this that Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. Look at the text there in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. It says there he is the image of the invisible God. Now it opens up there in 15 just with that statement, He is. He, of course, is referring to the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. If you back up in the text in Colossians 1 where it says that He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is, again, referring to the person and the work Of Jesus Christ. Now you'll know what Paul says. Look again in your text. He says in verse 15, He is. And that little word is maybe the most important word of the text right here this morning. You might ask why. Because think about it. Paul is writing about a man nailed to a cross, witnessed to die um, in an entire community about 30 years earlier. And yet when Paul speaks of him, he speaks of Christ in the present tense. Now look what he says of Jesus Christ. It says there in the word of God that he is the image of the invisible God. Now I want to just look at that with you for a moment in reverse order. I want to look at invisible and then we'll look at what it means that he is the image of the invisible God. What does it first mean here that God is invisible? Uh, it, it's really somewhat of a, a strange statement of of what's really true. Jesus is the something you can see of the something which cannot be seen. But nevertheless, the scriptures affirm this idea, this concept of God being the invisible God. In fact, Jesus said clearly, it states in John 1.18, that no man has seen God at any time. I mean we know that no one has seen God. You remember back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 33, remember when God told Moses there, he said you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and what? live. And so it's very clear no one has seen the person of God. Jesus said in John 3:37 that the Father who sent me, he is born witness of me. And then Jesus said in John 3, 37, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And so the scriptures are clear that God, here as it's represented in the book of Colossians, is invisible. In fact, look to the right just a few pages over to 1 Timothy. Certainly you remember this, when Paul was giving truth to his young son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy. Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 17. You remember, he said there, now to the king, eternal, immortal, and what? Invisible. There again, in the scripture, God is presented as invisible. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 6. You remember there, as he kind of moves towards his conclusion of the book, when he talks about the only sovereign in 6.15 at the end of verse 15, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone, verse 16, possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has, what, seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, you might ask the question, why is God unseen? As you look back in the book of Colossians, it's there declared He is the invisible God. Why is He unseen? Well, clearly we would understand from the Gospel of John, John chapter 4 in verse 24, where it says that God is a what? He's a spirit, right? He's a spirit. But watch this now as you look in Colossians 115, what it says regarding the person of Jesus Christ, that he is, here Paul says, the image of the invisible God. It is a profound statement. He says to us, worshiping even this morning, that we can see God by looking at Jesus. Here the text says in verse 15 that he is the image. The Greek word is icon. And it means a perfect replica. We have it translated thus, image. The idea of icon or image is that it's a precise copy. It's a likeness. It's a duplicate. In fact, we get from this Greek word, even our own English word, icon from it. And it refers to a, a statue in some places of the scripture. In fact, in the word "image" or icon" is used in Matthew 22:30 when it speaks of Caesar, Caesar's portrait on a coin. I lived in Chicago for a little bit that our family and there at the United Center would be a image of Michael Jordan, the statue at the United Center. In fact, I remember when they first put that at, put that out that Many people would come to the image in those days and actually bow down to it and kiss it. It was somewhat uh, grotesque, actually. But nevertheless, there was an image of him out in front of the United Center. And the thought of this ideal of image here is of a likeness, a replica. And here in this text, what Paul is saying is that God himself is fully manifest in the person of his Son. He's saying that through Jesus Christ, the invisible God has been made visible. And it's not just a picture. It is the very revelation of God. That Jesus Christ is the revealer of God. In Christ, in Jesus, the invisible God is revealed. Look back for a moment in John's Gospel. Look at this great statement there. The other writers affirm this. Obviously, in John chapter 1, in verse 18, the Apostle John is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ here. It's a wonderful statement. It says, very similar to what I read earlier, John the Apostle says in one eighteen that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, and then this little phrase, He, speaking of Christ, has explained Him. In other words, you've not seen God, but when you see Christ, He has explained Him. It's from that word that we even get exegesis from or we it's the ideal of uh, being interpreted in other words jesus if you will interprets and explains god he has exegeted him in other words if you look at christ you see god in his person in fact look over to john chapter 14 john chapter 14 did not our lord say this Did not our Lord say this? You remember there in John 14 when he was preparing the disciples uh, for his departure and Jesus said to him, that would be to Philip in 14.9, Have I not been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? Remember this statement? He who has seen me has seen what? The Father. In other words, to behold the person of Jesus Christ, The invisible God becomes visible and made manifest in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look back now to Colossians. Paul affirms this even in the other statements there in the book of Colossians. He tells us um, there that great, great truth. Look over at Colossians chapter 1. You might even be asking, well, how much do do we see in Christ of God the Father? It says in Colossians chapter one in verse 19, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In fact, look at Colossians two in verse nine, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it says for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, all of the divine power and all of the divine attributes of God the Father are in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, certainly you would recognize, and I would, that though we are made in God's image, according to the book of Genesis, in God's likeness, we would never be described like this. I mean, obviously, God, man is not the perfect image of God. We are fallen creatures. However, what Paul is saying here in the word of God is that Jesus is the perfect, accurate image of God. In other words, in his person, nothing is lacking. No attributes are missing. Jesus is God in the fullest possible sense. He is the perfect image. He is God in human flesh. He is the revelation of God. In fact, look at this scripture. I was going to just read it, but look over at 2 Corinthians. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see that it's not only in Colossians, but our Lord would state it. The apostle John states it. And now here, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 4, you know this statement, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel or the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There's that statement, who is the icon, the image of God. Look at verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Paul is saying that the light of the glory of God is imaged in the face of Jesus Christ. Or in Jesus Christ, God himself becomes manifest. Remember how the writer of Hebrews put it when he said, speaking of Christ, that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And so Christ reflects God's character as the sunlight reflects the sun. It is in the sun that the invisible God has become visible so that we see him who is invisible in the person of Christ. Now it's because of this image that Jesus Christ, according to Paul in Colossians, as you look back there, is in a class all by himself. Because look what the text says in 15. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. And then speaking of Christ, it says he is the firstborn of all creation. So if you're tracking here Paul's thought, the the first part of 15 tells us that what Christ is himself in relation to God, he's the image of the invisible God. And then he unfolds the second part of that verse that of what Christ is in relation to To creation. He is, in that statement, the firstborn of all creation. Now, it's a very important phrase for us because it is the battleground on which we fight the cults actually regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. Going all the way back in church history from the Arian controversy in the 4th century to the Jehovah Witnesses in our day. I mean, their assessment is that Jesus is a created being that he's created by God, but he's not God himself. And in this sense, then, Jesus is not deity or he is not, in their thinking, in false teaching, eternal God. Now, at first glance, when you look at the English text, it appears to, to support this claim, actually. But there's more to it than... It first appears. To understand this phrase, we've got to look carefully at that term, firstborn. It's a very, very important word in our Christology. The concept of firstborn in the scripture has three different shades of meaning. First, I would say to you that it is used in a very literal sense when you hear firstborn. In fact, it's used that way in Luke 2, 7, when it says that Mary brought forth her firstborn son, is what the text says. In other words, Jesus was the first child she gave birth to, literally. So sometimes firstborn is just used in a literal sense. But that word firstborn, or prototokos in the Greek, is also used in a figurative sense. In fact, you remember, do you not, reading your Old Testament, in the ancient world, a father had to appoint an heir, and he called his heir the firstborn. Usually, it was the firstborn, okay, but not always. You remember Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but Jacob got the inheritance. He became the firstborn. When you look in the Old Testament, Israel was called God's firstborn in Exodus 4.22, as well as in Jeremiah 31.9. But though not the, the firstborn people, they held place, or first place, did the Jewish people, in God's sight among all the nations, but thirdly, this word firstborn is used to designate a place of superiority, if you will. In fact, it's used in Psalm eighty-nine, twenty-seven, when God says of the Messiah that I also shall make him my firstborn. But then it goes on to define what it means where it says in Psalm 89 that that means the highest of the kings of the earth. So in other words, of all firstborn sons, he is the preeminent one. And so you have this thought in the scripture, such as in Revelation 1.5, where Jesus is called. Do you remember there where it says that he is the firstborn of the dead? Now, obviously you say, what does that mean? Well, even though he was not the first person to be resurrected chronologically, the thought would be in Revelation 1.5, of all ever raised, Here's the thought. He is the preeminent one. He is the superior one. He is the unique one. So firstborn has to do with position, not time. It has to do with rank and it has to do with dignity. And the point being here in the text is that of all creation and out of all created beings, Jesus is the superior, supreme one, the most important one who has the highest position, okay? Now, if there's any questions left on what that means, look at the next statement in Colossians 1.16. It says there, "...for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities." All things have been created, it says there, through him and for him. Now you have that little word for there and it's the reason for the explanation of that glorious title given to Jesus Christ in verse 15. So watch this. He is not only the revelation of God and superior in rank and dignity to every creature, but he himself is the very one, this is what's incredible, who created The creation. So the first declaration is that Jesus is the revelation of God. But secondly, Jesus, keep this in your mind as we move towards Christmas just in two weeks, that Jesus is the creator of the universe. Just zero in on the statement again in verse 16 For by him all things were created. So he's not only the image of God, but the creator of the universe. In other words, Grace Church, he created all of it. The earth, the moon, the stars, the animals, the insects, the natural wonders, and even man. He created all of it. It's incredible. In other words, he is the creator of the universe. That's why it's hard for me for, to believe when some people say, I just don't think Jesus can turn water into what? Wine. That's nothing, right? I mean, he created all that is in the world. And this is the the affirmation of the scripture. I mean, in John chapter 1 3, you probably know it by heart that all things were made by him, and without him, nothing that is nothing, there was not anything that was made. It's incredible. Jesus Christ created it all. I mean, think about it just for a moment. Just think of the sheer size of the universe. It's staggering, okay? The sun, for example, has a diameter of 864,000 miles. Try to picture that, okay? That is 100 times the size of the earth. And it could hold 1.3 million planets the size of the earth inside it. Okay, then there's this star called Betelgeuse, right? It has a diameter of 100 million miles, which is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. And you know this, that it takes sunlight traveling at 186,000 miles per what? Per second, about 8.5 minutes to reach the Earth. Okay, you got that picture? And yet that same light, listen, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it would take that light more than four years to reach the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, some 24 trillion miles from the earth. I mean, it's just vast. I mean, the galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way, contains hundreds of billions of stars. In fact, astronomers estimate that there are millions and even billions of galaxies. And what Paul's declaring to us is that Jesus Christ created all of it. All of it. And so certainly in two weeks, we will give thanks, will we not, as family, as individuals for the baby that is born. But when you think about that, he was born and he took on flesh, but he's the creator of the entire universe. In fact, each of the, if you go on in 16, the prepositions in 16 communicate a very important aspect of Jesus as the creator of the universe. Look what it says there. It says, for by him, all things have been created. In other words, Christ is acknowledged in the text as the cause of creation. Everything created, namely all things, has Christ as its reference point Because he's the architect, he's the builder, he's the creator of it all. Then it says in verse 16, down towards the bottom, all things have been created through him. In other words, not as a a passive instrument, but as the divine agent. In other words, Jesus is the person of the Godhead through which the creative power was performed. And then you'll note at the end of verse 16, they've been created through him. And then it says, and for him. In other words, creation's goal is Christ. He is the intent of the creation. And so as he is its beginning, he must be the end. Now you'll note, look back at the text in verse 16. It says, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible And invisible. Stop there just for a second. The visible relates to what is on the earth. The invisible to what is in heaven. And what Paul is declaring here by the truth of the word of God is that we are to regard all things from any direction, but the glorious fact remains that the existence of everything depends on the sun. It's an incredible thought. And you know what's really unique about this in some way is that when you look back in ancient Greek philosophy, the Greek philosophers taught that everything they said in the way they schemed things, that everything's got to have a, a primary cause, then it's got to have an instrumental cause, and then it's got to have a final clause. The primary clause, in their thinking is the plan. The instrumental cause is the power. The final clause is the purpose. And when it comes to the created universe here, Jesus is the primary cause. He planned it. He is the instrumental cause that he produced it. And he is the final cause that it's for his own glory and for his own pleasure. So Paul just says here, he's not only the revelation of God, but secondly, he is the creator of the universe. But then he makes a third declaration. He says that Christ is eternal God. He is eternal God. Look at the text in verse 17. He goes on to say that He, speaking of Christ, is before all things. It's, it's, it's a profound sentence. Literally, He existed before all things. And there's two senses to that. One just would be a sense of order. In other words, there's nothing higher than him. But then secondly, a sense of time. He is before, and again, he puts it in the present tense, and it follows that he who made it all necessarily existed before it all, right? And we know that John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. He always was, truly, truly, as I was in the Sunday school classes, Scott Booker went under, under that when it says in John 8, 58, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So he is none other than the pre existent Christ who is co-eternal with the Father. And so he is eternal God. I love that statement in Micah in the Old Testament where it says in Micah 5, 2, but it's for you, Bethlehem. It says, too little to be named among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So he is before all things. He is indeed Alpha. He is Omega. He is the first. He is the last. He is the beginning. He is the end. And so Paul here declares that he's the revelation of God. That Jesus, secondly, is the creator of the universe. Thirdly, that he is eternal God. And then fourthly, look what he says there finally in verse 17. That he is before all things. And then this last phrase, and in him all things hold together. Fourth declaration is this, that he not only created the world, but he's the sustainer of the universe. The idea here where it says in verse 17, in him all things hold together, it's the ideal of to place together is what the word means, to to stand together, to, to hold together. In other words, Jesus is the principle of cohesion in the universe. Here what the word of God is declaring is that Christ not only made all things, he will not only one day inherit all things, but even today, even on December 11th, 2011, he is maintaining all things. In other words, everything in the universe is sustained right now by Jesus Christ, which is so opposite of what deism teaches, right? They teach that God is like the great watchmaker in the sky, and he just, once he created it, he just hurled the world out there and it kind of runs on its own. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul declares through the authority of the word of God that in him, in Jesus Christ, all things are presently being held together. I mean, it's interesting that the scientists really do not have a, have a clue as to why the universe holds together. In fact, many scientists would propose the existence of what they call dark matter, which we actually cannot detect. In fact, It's interesting, in the makeup of a nucleus of an atom, there are protons, as you know, with a positive charge. And science's biggest question is, what holds the protons together in the nucleus? In fact, in his book, The Atom Speaks, there's a man by the name of Dr. Lee Chestnut. And he describes the puzzle of why the nucleus of the atom holds together. Uh, Listen to what he says. It's somewhat wordy, but... Hang on to it. He says, Consider, quote, the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. There are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. And with them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, and eight with no charge. And he said earlier physicists had discovered that the like charges of electricity and the magnetic poles repel each other. And unlike charges of, of the, the magnetic thought and field um, attract each other, right? He says in the entire history of electrical phenomena and electrical equipment has been built on these principles known as Coulomb's law of electrostatic force and the law of magnetism. And then he goes on to ask, what was wrong? He says, what holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? And he goes on to describe an experiment performed in the 1920s that proved Coulomb's law applied to the atomic nuclei. He said that powerful atom smashers, is what he called them, were used to fire protons into a nuclei of atoms. Those experiments also gave scientists an understanding of the incredibly powerful force that held protons together within the nucleus. He said scientists have dubbed that force the strong nuclear force, but they have no explanation of why it exists. They still can't figure it out. In fact, there's a man by the name of Carl Darrow, who's a physicist at the AT&T Laboratories, agrees. Here's what Darrow says. He says, quote, you grasp what this implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should have never have been created. And if created, why? He says they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they all are, some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. He said the nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself, end of quote. Listen, what the scientist cannot figure out, the word of God declares that Jesus Christ not only created all of the world, But he is holding it together, sustaining the universe this very moment I speak. I mean, listen, without Christ sustaining power, this world would disintegrate in a heartbeat, wouldn't it? I mean, it's amazing when you think of who Christ is. Christ is holding it all together. He is the creator and he is the sustainer of the universe. I mean, as as one author I read, he said, consider, for example... What instant destruction would happen if the earth's rotation slowed down just a little? They went on to say that the sun has a temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot, isn't it? He said, if it were any closer to us, we would burn up. If it were any further away, the way it's designed, we would freeze. Our globe is tilted at an exact angle of 23 degrees, providing us with four seasons. But if our globe was not tilted at such degree, vapors from the oceans would move north and south and develop into monstrous continents of ice. And if the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would inundate the land completely twice a day. See, God not only created it, Christ created it, but He's sustaining it. If the ocean floors were merely a few feet deeper than they are, the carbon dioxide and the oxygen balance of the Earth's atmosphere would be completely upset and no animal or plant life could exist. I mean, all of this, he is keeping it together. How is the universe sustained? It is the preeminent power of Jesus Christ sustaining it all. Listen, no mathematician, no scientist, no astronomer, no nuclear physicist could do anything without the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. He is holding it all together. I'm thinking of the statement in Hebrews where it says of Christ that He is the radiance of His glory. Remember we spoke on that one. The exact representation of His nature. But then the writer of Hebrews said this, that He upholds all things by the word of His power. What a thought. Here is Jesus Christ. As you think about Christmas coming before you paul gives these four declarations to us he is the revelation of god he is the creator of the universe he is eternal god and then fourthly he is the sustainer of the world in which we live you say but scott what 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 should that do for me well it obviously ought to inform your christology but, but I think there's an exhortation for us. Look in the text, and you don't want to miss this. This is the most important thing, maybe. It says in the next verse, in verse 18, that he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the what? From the dead. Now, you need to understand, what does that mean? He's the firstborn from the dead. Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead in terms of time. It simply means, as it did in Revelation 1 5, he's the Prokotokos, that of all the people that have been firstborn, he is preeminent in that rank in dignity. And so Paul says he's the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead. And here's the key verse 18 so that he himself will come to have, what, first place in everything. That's the issue, that Jesus Christ, because of who he is, ought to have first place in our entire life, right? That as we move into this Christmas season, as, that we, as you're probably busy even now, that he ought to have the preeminent place in every one of your life who are claiming Jesus Christ. If you're older in the faith, he ought to be the preeminent one. He ought to be the one in first place. It ought to show in your time. It ought to show in your talents. It ought to show in your energy. If you're young in Christ, listen, he needs to be the preeminent one. He needs to be the supreme one. He's more important than any relationship you can ever be involved in. He needs to be more preeminent than any business venture that you can be part of. He needs to be preeminent more than any aspect of any athletic career that you might have he because of who he is and because of his power and because of his position and because of his humility in which he came to earth he ought to have first place in every one of our life right that there ought to be nothing more important right now nothing more preeminent nothing more focused nothing that you're more passionate about than the person of jesus christ He ought to be the one that we wake up to in the morning praying. He ought to be the word that we're investing in, reading, saying, Lord, teach me more. He ought to be the one that has first place in every single aspect of our life. He ought to be the preeminent one in this church. And so we're praying to that end that God would reveal even his glory here in this place. But he ought to be having first place. But you know what's amazing? Just one more thought if you're, if you're still in the text right here. You think of who he is. You, you think of the fact that he's the revelation of God, that he is the creator, that he is eternal God, that he is sustainer. And yet what does it say about him? Look back in verse 13, that he rescued us from the domain of darkness And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And here's what his Son did, in whom we have redemption, the what, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Christ, being very God, God in the flesh eternal God the one who said let there be light and there was light the one who named all of the stars the one who just spoke the world into existence the one who gave you life the one who gave you breath the one who gives life and breath to seven billion people today this is the one who went and died on a cross for us that's incredible is it not that he has a love relationship with you, that God the Father put you in his mind and heart before the world began and then gave his son who through the incarnation came to a sin-filled world and then went to a cross to die for us that you might gain the forgiveness of all of your sins. It's an incredible thought, is it not? That this very one who is God this very one who dwelt in unapproachable light, this very one who dwelt in perfect communion with God the Father from all time was always there is the one who entered into the world for us and redeemed us by his death on the cross for this purpose, for the forgiveness of our sins that we might give him glory. You know, there's a, there's a song, it's a little old now. Do you remember this? I I love it at Christmas season. I think it's maybe my favorite song, at least contemporary song, outside of some of those great hymns of his birth. It was written by a man by the name of Mark Lowry. And it's a little bit old now, but every time I read it, I just, I love it. You've probably heard it. It's called Mary, Did You Know? But let me just read you the lyrics of that song. It says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy... Would one day walk on water. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man? Did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod and that when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God? Mary, did you know that your baby boy, think about this, is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy was heaven's perfect lamb? And the sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. That's who he is. So listen, as the season's before you, as you get busy, don't forget who he is, amen? And don't forget that you ought to give him first place in everything. Would you bow your head with me? And would you just take a moment to pray? Just in worship, thanking God for giving His Son. Thanking the Lord Jesus Christ that He left glory for you. That the sinless one, the perfect one, died in your place for you. For sinners such as I. It could be maybe this morning that you've come in with heavy heart, locked into a trial, this last week, this last month, maybe this last year. And it's hard to, to worship or difficult. But listen, Christ is above that. He wants to have first place in everything and so even this morning could you thank him for your trial could you thank him for the difficulty could you thank him for even a, a relationship that maybe was broken off that's difficult but the lord is good Possibly, maybe there's something in your life that you want to confess or give over to the Lord. Do so now. Do so now and worship Him.